and the spirit of dark and lonely water, ready to trap the unwary, the show-off, the fool. Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. On my right is the great library of RPGs and my Grognard Files. Here on my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Munro. I'll, uh, I'll just give it a tap. Ah, yes. The eternal champion appears in a purple spandex leotard on the cover of a long-playing record, Top of the Pops, with cover versions of hits such as Cause I Love You, Jeepster, Witch Queen of New Orleans, and The Theme from Shaft. We are being transported to the UK living rooms of the 1970s and 80s for this podcast. We've had another review. They're always good to receive and I read them here because they often do a better job of explaining what the grog pod is all about than I can. This is from Art Kunz. No experience necessary. I wasn't sure I knew enough or had enough experience when I first started listening to this podcast. However, it has become one of my favourites. Even if you don't know your RuneQuest from your gin rummy, you'll find this podcast warm and welcoming. I must admit that it helps to be of a certain age, but I think there's lots to learn about stuff you've never heard of. Games, TV and films. I must admit, this podcast has cost me money as it made me drift over to the eBay and track down some long-lost titles. Thanks for that. At the moment, I'm completely and utterly surrounded by my stuff. I've been leafing through the two volumes of Scarred for Life, a book about growing up in the dark popular culture of the 70s and 80s. Terrifying public information films, violent comics morally complex children's television dramas and horror-orientated snacks are all featured in these huge volumes and there's a third volume on its way and it features RPGs of the 1980s. Well, we couldn't let that pass by, so I've invited one of the authors, Stephen Brotherston, to join me in the room of role-playing rambling. In this part, we talk about his formative experiences in role-playing and the legendary game store, Games of Liverpool. He tells us how the Scarred for Life project originated and we pick out some of the highlights. In the second part, we'll look at some of the RPGs that Scarred for Life cover in the forthcoming third volume. But for now, I really enjoyed my chat with Steve. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to it and it encourages you to explore some of the dark corners of our youth. From Noah's Castle to Nosy Bonk and the horrific heads of Wurzel Gummidge. Oh, a daft head. Our resident rules lawyer, Judge Blythe, is with me at the Port Street Beer House in Manchester for a brand new segment, Speed Rating. 
where we examine a whole game in about 20 minutes, maybe a bit longer with digressions. This time, we'll look at a game from the 21st century. I know, unbelievable. Monster of the Week is a Powered by the Apocalypse game by Michael Sands, published by Evil Hat in 2015. But at its heart is the television of the 70s, 80s and 90s, I should give you a jazz warning. That's right, a jazz warning. It'll be playing in the background as we talk. We have some closing time chatter at the end with a bit of any other business that's occupying our thoughts at the moment. And I'll be back at the end with some parish notices. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box! Welcome to Open Box. It's the part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards. And this time I'm joined in the Zoom of role playing rambling by role player, author of Scarred for Life, illustrator, graphic designer, none other than Stephen Brotherston. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Derek. Nice to be yeah. here. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, I was very keen to get you on the podcast because I went to one of your great live events. Was it Wigan? Yes, I went, I went yes. to Wigan, yeah, yeah. Wigan. Really enjoyed that. Perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So where, where in the world are, are, are you coming from, uh, Steve? I am in South Liverpool, not far from um, Penny Lane. Ah, right. It's a little short yeah. walk away, so yeah, a little bit of a Beatles tour. Yeah, yeah South Liverpool, where I was born and bred. I always have lived kind of all over the country but I just seem to snap back like a rubber band yeah so you open the curtains every day and you've got a crowd of uh, people waiting the door and layout of your uh, bedroom <laughs> window have you not quite, not quite. <laughs> the question that we always ask people when they come on the podcast is how did you start role playing so what was the first game you played and who were you playing with my memory of all these things are so vivid because yeah. I've grown up around gamers and we've got that pool of anecdotes and we're constantly, oh, do you remember this? Remember that? So it's vivid. I remember a Games of Liverpool, a shop called Games of Liverpool opened up like round the corner from my mum and dad's house, like two or three blocks down. It was only a small shop and you kind of walked in and there'd be executive toys and Cluedo, Monopoly, the, the above board stuff. And as you got further to the back of this little shop up the stairs, it got darker and darker by where the till was. And that's when I saw kind of SPI war games, um, War of the Ring and Minas Tirith and Magic Realm, all these incredibly complex games I didn't know existed. And then right at the back, you had all your role-playing stuff. And I saw this magazine called White Dwarf. And on the front, it had a photograph of the Starship Enterprise in dry dock from Star Trek, the motion picture. And I was just like, oh my God. It was, I think the, um, the film had been out the previous year. This was 1980. So I was nine, 10 and 10. And I got this magazine down off the shelf and was looking through and it wasn't a Star Trek mag. I didn't understand it, but it had some kind of game, a Star Trek, the motion picture game that you're supposed to play with little miniatures. So I didn't understand any of it, but I spent my pocket money on it and I bought that magazine, took it home. And I spent, I do remember spending pretty much the entire evening and reading it in bed, baffled and completely transfixed. I didn't know what hit points were. 
I didn't know such a thing as a 20-sided dice. It was like, what sorcery is this? So it was this Star Trek kind of little war game. I had a map of the bridge of the Enterprise and a two-page rule set. So I was completely baffled talking about movement allowances and combat strength and hit points. And I was just, I was entranced. And as I went through the magazine, I've still got it. I've got it in front of me here, as you can see, back there. All the adverts for things, a game called Top Secret that was like James Bond. There was um, a, a column called Fear. Was it Fiendfolia, wasn't it? Yeah, Fiendfolia with monsters in. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of like, well, I don't understand. I don't know what armor class is. I don't know what hit dice is. What the hell does Treasure J mean? But I couldn't put it down. And all the, every advert for all these games and game stores and the names of these games was just blew me mind. But the thing that did it for me was this Dungeons and Dragons module in the center of the magazine called The Halls of Tizun Thane. I've never forgotten it. And I've, I still look at it now and again. Didn't understand how to play it because it wasn't a board game. I only understood board games when I was nine. But it had a map. But obviously, it was a classic D&D dungeon with little rooms with numbers in. I remember sitting propped up in bed that night trying to figure out what this all meant, kind of the background. What do you mean the adventurers are going to a village? I don't understand. But then starting in the courtyard at number one, I would imagine going through the rooms of this huge palace and then reading the descriptions and making my own story. And I was it. I basically, it changed my life. Fell in love, went back to um, Games of Liverpool with me pocket money the next Saturday. And I saw, which you'll remember, the Dungeons and Dragons basic rule book, the, the blue cover with the dragon sitting on the hoard of gold. So I had to save up two weeks pocket money, bought that, and blew my mind. That was it. In love. Changed my mind. Role player for life. Introduced it to my mates. Changed their lives. And that was the weird thing. D&D &D was the first game I ever played, which it usually is with most people, with my school friends. but. One of my mates, Norman Pang, his, his parents owned a chippy on Allerton Road, where I grew up. And, I mean, he's at that point, it was it felt like he was swimming in money. So we were buying D&D &D stuff. I was always the GM, but I loved it. I can remember vividly playing Tomb of Horrors, Module S1, the one with just kind of sudden death I talk about in um, Volume 3. I remember playing. It was one of the, the few times that I played D&D &D rather than GM'd. And you remember Tomb of Horrors, don't you? You know, but that, yeah. I didn't make it down the first staircase. It was whatever it, sudden death trap it was. It just got me. And we've been playing for five minutes. I was like, come on, mate. And he was like, no, no, no. It was, we were like 11. You know, kids are like back then. He's like, nope, you're dead. I was like, well, it's five minutes. And he's like, nope, you're dead. And it was like three of my mates just laughing. And going, ah. <laughs> so I stormed off. I flounced off downstairs. And I, I was fuming. And I sat with my mates. Mom and dad watching Box Fizz win the Eurovision <laughs> Song Contest while they were playing D&D upstairs. I'll never forget that. <laughs> and we, then we moved on to RuneQuest. That blew our minds because there's hit location tables, then it was Top Secret, and then Villains and Vigilantes. And we never stayed still. We wouldn't play the same game for more than six months at a time. So in the space of about two or three years, we must have gone through about 20 games. And wow. my life's been like that, always kind of... The next one, the next one, the next one. I'm like that now. I'm always yeah. looking for the next game. 
But yeah, D&D, 1980, White Dwarf, issue 18, changed my life. And I've heard the legend of Games of Liverpool. There's lots of our listeners who recall it fondly. So just to describe it, because it had its own distinctive smell, I believe, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> atmosphere. It did. This is the thing, because the, the Games of Liverpool around the corner from my mum and dad's, I didn't know. Because when we went into town on a, a Saturday, that was a big treat. But we tended to stay to the same areas, the main shopping area, Church Street and the areas around there. And I only found out, me and my mates, through chatting to the old woman that worked in the one round the corner from my mum and dad's, that it was a tiny satellite store of the big main store in town. So our heads fell off at that point. And I badgered my dad the next time I went to town. She gave me, she basically gave me my mates kind of the rough location on Dale Street. And I remember going with my dad and it was the same deal. You walk in, it was on the corner of a, a um, kind of corner, corner of Dale Street. It was kind of a V-shape. So you walk in the front door and again, it's executive toys. It's all the above board, the stuff that's not going to frighten people away. And then to the left is the steepest set of stairs you've ever seen in your life. And you go from this bright room to this dank dungeon, this long dungeon. There was, um, it blew my mind. My dad didn't know what to make of it. He was fascinated. He was looking through loads of the books. And I was looking through D&D modules, the board games, um, the Traveller box set. And I remember seeing a Flash Gordon rule book. But I think it was by Fantasy Games Unlimited. And I love Flash Gordon serials at that point. And the 1980 film is like one of my top three films of all time. So I badgered my dad to buy that one. And again, didn't quite understand the rules, but that was that. I was kind of fascinated. Then we went into the other two back rooms, and it's two rooms full of glass cases with metal miniatures in, which just, I'd never seen anything like it in my life. Beautifully painted and displayed. So that became the Saturday haunt for me and my mates for years to come. And it, it, I mean, it stank. It was every cliche about a role-playing shop that you can think of. It was dark, it was dingy, it smelt of must and dust and sweat, but God, it was it was our home away from home and we loved it. We genuinely loved it. And it was legendary. It was absolutely legendary, like you said, in Liverpool. Everyone I've met of a certain age who role-played in Liverpool either has heard of or used to frequent games in Liverpool. And one of my closest friends, who was also my ex-manager at Forbidden Planet in Liverpool, he used to work games in Liverpool years ago, mm-hmm. happiest days of his life. So we kind of crossed paths back then when I was a kid. I know that there are some people who still haven't forgiven Games Workshop for opening it opposite because they put that down to <laughs> the demise of uh, Games of Liverpool. Can can you testify that that would probably what happened? I don't think it helped, but I mean, I don't want to gossip, but from what Chris tells me, the guy that ran Games of Liverpool was a lovely, lovely man, but an appalling manager. He didn't have a business mind. So I think it was a combination of Games Workshop opening and he kind of didn't move with the times. I mean, this is the thing. They were so successful at one point. They were supplying as Deviant Games with their supplies. They were huge. But yeah, unfortunately, he didn't move. When it came to the 90s, I don't know, he just kind of got left behind when Games Workshop exploded and Warhammer came out and this and that. He, he, I think, from what I understand, he just, he liked things 
just so. And he couldn't yeah. handle all these new miniatures games and the way role-playing was going. So that was that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you put that side of the story over because, you know, it helps to create a more balanced picture, I think. Well, that was when Game Shirt Workshop was cool as well. I mean, yeah. it, not that it's not cool now, but back then, man, it was, um, I mean, I couldn't knock them. They produced amazing games, Judge Dread. Yeah. Loved Games Workshop back then as well. So, And so you were, you were playing um, all of these uh, games, but also you were clearly immersed in all other kind of uh, stuff as well, weren't you? Because we, we always yeah. say that it didn't exist in a vacuum. It kind of uh, was supplied by everything else. So it, it strikes me that you, you were a real comics guy as well. Massively. Yeah, that's um, my other big passion. Always has been since I was a kid. Is comics? I grew up a proper nerd. It was comics, role playing, board games, um, science fiction, and horror, and video games, computer games when they came along in the early eighties. And if it wasn't to do with that, I just wasn't interested. One of the things that appalls people, my mates to this day, is I have never seen any World War Two film from beginning to end because I just wasn't interested. I just switched it off on the telly. I've never seen The Great Escape. Um, I called it Alex, um, Dan Busters, because when I was a kid, I was watching Star Wars, Star Trek. Um, it came from Beyond Death and every single horror film ever made, I think, at that point. And just I'd always had my nose in a book and a comic and like a role playing manual. So yeah. with a pencil in my hand. But yeah, that was my life. And so how did that become... The Scarred for Life project. So, uh, how did uh, Scarred for Life come about? My mate and co-author of Scarred for Life, Dave Dave Lawrence, was actually Forbidden Planet's oldest serving customer. He was almost there from like day one to the point where, you know, they become like more than a customer. They become a friend, a genuine friend. So, it was one quiet morning. Um, there was me, my mate Col who worked there, and Dave was in, and we were just chatting having a cuppa, um, doing deliveries. And it was one of those conversations after an hour and a half, two hours, I realised afterwards, it was just one of those conversations where, like you said before, you, you can't up saying, oh, do you remember that film? Oh, do you remember that TV show? Do you remember that comic where, do you remember that game? And we were just reminiscing about the pop culture that we grew up with in the 70s and 80s. But when it got busy and we got kind of properly working in, in the day, I realized that literally, and I'm not exaggerating, everything we talked about was either incredibly violent, incredibly shocking, inappropriate, racist, just horrendous. And most of them were aimed directly at children, the public information films we grew up with. And I just got really interested as sort of when I got home, I went on Amazon and I thought someone somewhere has obviously written a book about this, not just growing up in the 1980s, but growing up in the 1980s with the dark pop culture, because it's a no-brainer. And I couldn't find that book. I could find a million books about growing up in the 70s and 80s, but there's not a single book out there about growing up in the 70s and 80s that we remembered. And I was telling Cole about it the next day, and he went, well, you like it, right? Why don't you write it? And I, I remember I laughed in his face, but then... I couldn't get that idea out of my head all day in work. So went home, got a notebook, made a short list of things to write about. And this wouldn't go away. 
to the point where it became a thing. I made a proper list and started planning it out. This one book, this one book that was going to cover the whole of the 70s and 80s. And after about a week, I realized this is a, if we're going to, if I'm going to do this, this is a huge project and I couldn't do it alone. So I asked Dave, he liked to write as well. Told him about the project. He said, you fancy having a go of it? We probably won't finish it, but, but it's something to do. And he was like, yeah, okay. And we got stuck in. And it's one of those things where you just think it's a hobby. It's just something to go home and do. And you just kind of, it's not going to get finished, obviously. That's ridiculous. We're going to self-publish it if we do it. But we had all these plans, open the Twitter account to publicize it. And there's a point they always talk about, you hit a brick wall and you smash through. And there's a, I remember the time when I thought, no, we're going to do this. And it took three and a half years of research and writing. And but, but volume one eventually came out in, let's see now, it was the end of March 2017. And I remember saying to Dave, like I was talking to him on WhatsApp, minutes before I pressed publish on lulu.com, we published through. I said, you know what, mate, if we manage to sell 200 copies of this book in my lifetime, I'll be speechless. I'll be over the moon. And then we're getting the sales figures and we've hit like 310 copies halfway through day one and it's just exploded ever since then because we hit like me i wanted to read this book and it didn't exist and like you myself dave everyone who comes to our shows everyone who follows us on twitter that's that's a thing that's a specific thing for our generation the scarred for life generation we grew up in some real bleeding weird times (laughs) There was no, in terms of health and safety, television didn't have health and safety. It didn't have safety wheels. It was just like, yeah, we'll put the spirit of lonely water on at four o'clock in the afternoon between Magpie while they're eating the dinners. They'll be all right. And public information films with kids getting electrocuted. Yeah, whatever. It was just such a strange time to grow up with. So there's so much to write about. But volume one was 740 pages. And we had to chop it down from there. There's so much else we had to leave out. And volume two and three, we've had to split into two. It's going to cover the whole of the 80s, but volume two is just television. So volume three, which should hopefully be out end of summer this year, is going to be equivalent to the back half of volume one. It's going to be games, books, films, the paranormal, all the other stuff that isn't television. Yeah. And do you talk about um, White Dwarf changing your life? Well, I think this book has, because since I've had it a few years ago, it has sent me on so many uh, different (laughs) journeys. You you pick it up, this uh, 740 pages, and you can lose days of your life pursuing uh, rabbit holes that it takes you down. Uh, It's fantastic in that way. Because there's, uh, there's one particular uh, one that I want want to mention. That's uh, Noah's Castle. Because uh, I, I I I thought I dreamed Noah's Castle, which is a, a kids' TV uh, program. I think I read the book, and uh, originally from from the uh, from from the library, uh, I got it because I was I was obsessed with uh, post-apocalyptic ideas, and it seemed like a perfect thing. And I read the book, and the father seemed quite reasonable. And I don't think I actually, <laughs> I I don't think I actually saw the TV program until a few a couple of years ago, and I watched it. My goodness, I, they he's put a that. Psychopath. He's, he's, he's terrible. He's a genuine psychopath. <laughs> yeah. For anyone who doesn't know out there who's listening, uh, 
Noah's Castle passed me by at the time, me and Dave. It's basically, it's a children's show about kind of, it was a book that was written in, I think, I believe it was 1975. Dave's actually the, um, this is one of his specialist subjects. He wrote the piece on Noah's Castle, but it was kind of set five or six years in the future, the early 80s. Um, so the TV show, it's basically about a Britain that's collapsed under hyperinflation. Um, there's food banks, food riots, black marketing. People are starving. Stop me if you've heard this one, because every time <laughs> I bring this up, people go, oh, my God, it's Brexit. It's this. It's but it's heavily implied that schoolgirls are prostituting themselves in return for food. Mm-hmm. They, Like you say, the, it's basically about a family whose father has secretly bought a house in the middle of nowhere, secreted away. So he whisks his family away. Perfectly reasonable. Perfectly reasonable. Absolutely. <laughs> and he, that's his castle. And he's, he's got a, um, a hoard of food there, which is illegal. You're not allowed to hoard food. So he's basically ex-army and treats his family like they're in the army. He's a psychopath who bullies them all, pulls a pistol on his son at one point because he discovers his food hoard. The most shocking bit in the whole thing, I believe, is... Um, his boss, he works in a shoe shop, but his middle-class boss comes to stay, finds out about the house and goes, right, Norman, I want to stay here and I'll give you a promotion and blah, blah, blah. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And this oily old boss starts letching after this guy's teenage and young daughters. And the boss, the, the, the dad's basically going, listen, humor him. He basically is almost pimping his daughters out. So it's, I was like... <laughs> 4.45 in the afternoon. Yes. <laughs> this was <laughs> an astonishing drama. It's incredible. Starring Mike Reed and yes. Lee McDonald, Zamo from Grain Jill. Amazing. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And, and you make the observation that, that 4.15 uh, slot was quite a horrific slot if you hang around. Oh, the 4.45 club we started yeah. calling it. Oh, yeah, 4.45, yeah. accidentally discovered that things like Children of the Stones, um, Noah's Castle, loads of those kind of spooky, terrifying, very adult dramas were transmitted at 4.45, 4.50 in the afternoon. It was like Dave always makes the joke at our live, live shows. You'd go from Stutty and Sweep or Michael Benteen's Potty Time. There's no kind of airlock in between. You go from a program... For, for small children to there's a program called the feathered serpent from 1975 on itv it's this incredibly complex drama about um ancient aztec times it's about um religion and drama and um politics i always make the point that it's game of thrones for children but it featured stabbings beatings someone gets a spear in the side there's blood everywhere there's a human sacrifice patrick troughton's in it as the bad guy it's a long shot but at one point you see him hold up a human heart in a chalice and that was after like michael benteen's potty time at 4 45 it was i mean it wouldn't even be you wouldn't get past a pitch meeting we've had a there was very nearly a scarred for life documentary series three or four years ago didn't get off the ground but we had a meeting with them um, the producers and it was fascinating. They were just regaling us with the anecdotes of their career in television. And they were basically saying in pitch meetings, nowadays you go, oh, I've got an idea for a violent kid show set in Aztecs. And they just go, no, next. They wouldn't even hear you out. Mm-hmm. But that, back then it was just like, yeah, okay, cool. Stabbings, blood down someone's, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's astonishing. And, and 
You mentioned the uh, live shows there, so you take this uh, on the road, don't you, and uh, do, do a, a, an evening performance. And just to explain how that works and uh, what people can expect if they turn up to that. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's basically a comedy show. It's incredibly informative because that's the thing with our books as well. We do deal at times with incredibly dark subject matter and depending on what it is, we'll leave it at that. But 90% of the time, you've got to treat it with a lightness of touch. You've got to laugh with it. We never laugh at it. That's one of the things we always, we said going in, we're not going to laugh at the clothes. These things are made in the 70s and 80s. So we're not going to laugh at the clothes. We're not going to laugh at the kind of the wobbly scenery. We know about these things. We're going to celebrate the brilliant scripts and the great drama and that's the thing with the um the live shows the comedy shows there's me dave and the third part member of our team the fantastic bob fisher he's an ex um bbc T's um radio presenter who also writes for 40 and times this is his specialist subject as well he um he has a blog called the haunted generation he's very into hauntological stuff the same kinds of things we write about so he's our regular host He's absolutely amazing. So the three of us will take um, audiences through the 1970s in the first half. Then we have a little break. And then we take them through the 1980s in the second half. And as part of that, we've got a slideshow. We've got little set pieces. We do play a game of guess the Wurzel head. where We've got slides of two of Wurzel Gummidge's heads. And the audience have got to guess what those heads are. We do, in part two, we do a top 10, top of the pops rundown of the top 10 nuclear war themed pop songs of the 1980s um yeah it's just a, it's a fun night out it's it's informative you'll come away your head bursting with facts we, we talk about um the dark story behind nosy bonk's origin um there was a itv april fools tv show called alternative three that went horribly wrong that spawned a conspiracy theory that persists to this day, like 35 years later. I'd forgotten how terrifying Wurzel Gummidge's heads were um, until you reminded me. Um, Handsome head. Handsome head is terrifying. Anybody who's not seen uh, Wurzel Gummidge's heads, (laughs) you need to Google them. Horrifying. Again, this is an example. It's something we talk about in the shows. Just how many of these things were... Wessel Gummidge and Nosy Bunk are the two big examples where intended to be charming and whimsical and they come across as absolutely terrifying and they don't mean to be. But it's a, it's a it's a question we always pose is how many of these things the creators actually thought, right, let's scare the shit out of these kids or eh, let's just make a show. Let's see what happens. Yeah. It's, like I said, it's strange times. And, and Nosy Bunk, you can actually see how that is from a tradition of mime can't you that um yeah mask uh, is from a tradition of mine but as you say in the context of having a camera very close to it it takes on a whole different significance i think it does it really does i mean it really does look like i i make that point in book two i made a joke at the start of the nosy bonk section that he looks like he looks like the killer from an italian slasher film because he'd <laughs> always wear a black suit and white gloves and a mask <laughs> So it's it's I think it was it, it was um kind of Mr. Bean as directed by David Lynch. It's <laughs> this very strange Benny Hill style thing. One of the other um rabbit holes that this uh has sent me on as well 
is um, the sweets and uh, wrappers from the uh, the time. Because oh, yeah. obviously it does have a great nostalgic resonance, but for some reason they kind of disappeared, those uh, Dracula lollies and uh, uh, horror bags and all those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the 70s especially, that was, um, I think, as far as cinema went. Science fiction pipped it at the post in terms of box office. In the 70s, I mean, you had your things like The Exorcist, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You did have these big films that made a lot of money. But Hollywood looked down on horror. It was still kind of the ginger stepchild, whereas science fiction was... Where you, you, take, you could take your mum and dad along to a sci-fi film and enjoy Star Wars and Star Trek The Motion Picture or Logan's Run. But I think horror still had a bit of a grimy reputation. But as far as merchandise went, it was huge. We had that horror boom in the 70s that was directed at children, like you say. We ended up having this huge section in book one about... Um, Smith's horror bags, crisps, uh, and all the the penny chews and um, hard boiled sweets, tree born mummies that were directed straight to kids. Dracula ice lollies, Dracula's deadly secret with the blood red centre. Yes, yeah, and I seem to remember because I was bit uh, I was obsessed with the Planet of the Apes. In some ways, I still am, uh, but I seem to remember that that had uh, a Dracula connection. I think it was serialised with Dracula comic. Because that was... Uh, That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 The, the Marvel Weeklies, they'd always kind of... Planet of the Apes was its own title. But at some point, something would fold. And it always had on the front, didn't it? It was the, the, the message that you dreaded. It would be great <laughs> news for all our readers inside, which yeah. meant that it, was, it had died and it was going to get folded into another title. But I think you're right. I think it was either Planet of the Apes or Dracula had come to the end of its natural life and got folded in. And I remember um, my uh, nan uh, saying that I was reading these Dracula comics. She actually bought me um, a poster which featured, uh, it was, I think it was a Hammer House of Horror poster. And it was just totally inappropriate for a a nine year old to have on the wall of this guy holding up a severed head. Um, And I think, yeah, I think. I think my I think my dad um, I'm still trying to locate it. I think my dad uh, got rid of it quietly. <laughs> That's the thing. It was um, I mean, looking back, things like Action Comic, the British Weekly that got mm. yanked off the shelves after less than a year. Now. I mean, that's that's the one for me. 2008 is my favorite thing of all time. And I didn't read action when I was a kid because it wasn't sci fi. It wasn't horror. And I've always regretted that. But it had Hookjaw, the shark, basically Pat Mills, our own British comic genius who created action, who created 2008, created Judge Dredd. He knew what children wanted. And he knew the kids wanted to see Jaws. They wanted to see Dirty Harry. They wanted to see all these films. They couldn't get in the cinemas to see them. So he'd give it to them in a comic. So you had um, Dredger that was like Dirty Harry. You had um, Hookjaw that was Jaws, but all these things were 10 times worse. What was it? Um, Death Game 1999 that was rollerball dialed up to 11. All of these strips, they'd be X-rated, never mind 18 rated. They were 10 times worse than any of the films. Hookjaw had people getting their arms and legs ripped off. There's a guy gets chomped by Hookjaw the shark and he literally explodes 
his limbs and head fly off in different directions. And it was aimed at seven to 12 year olds. Yeah. It was just incredible. And there's something about um, the films that were shown as well, wasn't it? So you get double bills of horror on a, a tea time or late at night. Yeah. And I, I remember uh, I'd had the, I had the uh, Dennis Gifford book of horror films and uh, he'd have the man who laughs in there. And there's, you know, that image oh. of his face and uh, uh, I think it's a picture of a woman with an axe in the head and the uh, picture <laughs> of Karloff uh, burnt to, to a cinder in um, one of the films, I can't remember which one it is but yeah, the, those uh, those images uh, about, it really stuck in my head as a, as a child and yeah. alligator people with um, alligator men in chinos I seem to remember was the thing wow, I don't know yeah. that one yeah. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's um yeah it, it, it that, that's the that's the great thing about uh, these books I think it it does unearth things that you you can't they they're in there but you'd completely forgotten about them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the most I think the most gratifying thing we always hear on Twitter or when people talk to us at the live shows is what you've said. We've got like um Sapphire and Steel and Doctor Who and the Spirit of Lonely Water on the front cover and people tend to dip in they'll go to the things that they've heard of they'll go straight to sapphire and steel or the tomorrow people but when they've run out of reading about the things they remember they tend to then go to the things they've never heard of and that's the stuff that is really satisfying they'll go on twitter with a picture of the dvds that they've just ordered that are things like um shadows of fear or like you say Noah's castle and They'll come back and go, I've never heard of it until I've read your book. And it's blown my mind. And I always think, fantastic. That's another person introduced to these gems, these like obscure gems. So, but yeah, there's, there's so much, so much good stuff out there. And, and so in the uh, forward, Johnny Mains has coined the term uh, dark pop culture to describe this uh, kind, kind of thing. Now, you... Yeah. you you say that this is the final volume, so this third volume that's coming out. Why, why is it that it ends then? Well, um, several reasons, really. The main one, main two, is like the other question. The, the question we get asked more than anything to do specifically with the books is, are you doing a 90s volume? Because there are so many people who are just on the cusp, who still remember the 1980s and get, so much enjoyment out of volume two and volume three, hopefully. But they remember they were teenagers in the 1990s. And the problem is that me and Dave were in our 20s and we were at university and we were working and we were going out and we were around at our mates and we were getting pissed. And we don't even know what half of these things are. We, we weren't in to watch kids telly. People are recommending TV shows to us on Twitter and Facebook. And I'm like, I've never even heard of that. And this is the thing, we couldn't do it justice. We'd be, we'd be writing about it as outsiders. And there's things I could write about in the 1990s, but most of them would be kind of, I think, games or paranormal related. It was the decade of the X-Files and UFOs and ghosts were everywhere. And that was something that I was very interested in. I've always been a little bit obsessed by the paranormal. But as far as, oh, remember this kid show? I'd be like, well, no, I don't. And it doesn't have any effect on me because I was 23 when it was out. The other reason is, coming up to volume three, it will it will do the whole of the 80s in terms of comics, books, films, the paranormal, all that kind of paraphernalia. But then 
at the end, um, I think as things are looking, the last third is going to be a book within a book. It's going to be about the Cold War. So we've got Cold War television, films, books, all those different categories, but specifically talking about nuclear war themed pop culture. And then at the end, we're going to end with Ghostwatch in 1992, because that's the programme that seems to be the end of the Scarred for Life era, as in that's when programme makers realised that they did have a responsibility, a duty of care to the audiences. Uh, it was that kind of um, mockumentary. The BBC played it up as like a, a drama, but it was a, a fake live, real live broadcast from a haunted house in London with um, Michael Parkinson and Sarah Green and Craig Charles. Beautiful, just incredible piece of drama. Unfortunately, a lot of people like myself missed the first five or ten minutes and thought it was real for the first half. It becomes apparent later on that it's a drama, but it's an incredibly terrifying piece of drama as well. And a day or two after it was transmitted, a guy with learning difficulties unfortunately killed himself. He thought the demons were real and that they were going to come and possess him in the same way they possessed Michael Parkinson in the show. So he took his own life. Um, there was a huge kind of outcry. Um, Ghost Watchers basically hidden away in a broom cupboard somewhere in the BBC. It's never been repeated to this day. It's been released on DVD, but they've never, ever repeated it. And that, I mean, we, we were even talking to those producers and they kind of said that they'd heard much the same stories for real, that that was when TV producers were told, look, we've got a, a duty of care. We're going to have to start sanding the edges off these things now. So you will find after 1992, throughout the 90s, quite quickly, children's programming comes a lot softer. Even though there's still programs that will always scare children, mm. but we had nothing like the shows we had in the 70s and 80s. Nothing mm. like them. You wouldn't be allowed to have blood and I mean, even sort of mild swearing that we grew up with. We're still, we're still allowed to be adults. We're still allowed to be dark. But yeah, the, the, um, the edges get softened off after Ghost Watch. I think as well, there's like a sense of it, it, the nineties strike me as being an ironic period. And part of what's uh, scary and exhilarating, I guess about the seventies and eighties stuff that you cover is that it is yeah. unironic. It's, it, it's, it's, That's as you thing. said, they've just taken the idea of, right. Let's, let's go for it. Let's do it. We're doing it. That's let's absolutely yeah. from probably the very, very, very late, 80s, I would say, I'm talking about 88, 89. I think it was Channel 4 and some BBC Two shows. You see the very beginnings of a kind of um, youth shows that were kind of winking at the audience that became self-aware. That really comes in, like you say, the 90s was a bugger for it. It was all ironic. It was always, it's the lad culture, which mm. was just as bad as the 70s for sexism. But mm. It was done under the cloak of irony, which I think in some ways is even worse yes. because it was yeah. knowingly sexist. But yeah. yeah, you know, we're just taking the taking the piss. But this is the thing throughout the nineties. I think the other thing as well was after having two decades that felt horrible. The seventies, I mean, you had three day weeks, mm -hmm. um, power cuts, the national front, casual racism. The nineteen eighties, you basically lived under the shadow of the bomb for years. I thought I was gonna. I literally thought I wasn't gonna live to see nineteen ninety. I thought I was gonna die. It was a question of when, not if. So. 
the 1990s was kind of a, a release. The, the Berlin Wall's fallen, the Cold War's over, um, everyone's off the tits on ecstasy, raving, having a good time. Consumer and boom as well. Because consumer boom. So if it was the yeah. only decade I've ever lived through that felt happy. So mm. and I think the pop culture reflected that. It was very happy pop culture back then. Mm. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned the living under the shadow of the nuclear war and uh, that section that's in the new volume that's coming out. Yeah. I need to mention, of course, that I nearly caused a riot in Wigan. What? Uh, when I was at the show by suggesting that Threads was lightweight. And of course, that was you, wasn't it? My yeah. God, I was... you. For those listening, <laughs> the the gasp, the audible gasp from the audience was incredible. I wish I'd recorded it. It was like, oh, there was the sound of monocles falling out of eyes. And stuff. It was... I, I don't think it, I was helped because I think the Reese Dinsdale <laughs> Appreciation Society were in front of me and they glared yes. at me. <laughs> now, well, that re- remind me, why, why did you find, I mean, to this day, me and Dave have been psyching ourselves up for three years to watch Threads again. Why, how, how did you find it lightweight there? So, so I didn't, I don't, because people were so horrified that I made that statement, they didn't listen to the <laughs> second half of it. Um, and we've covered uh, threads in one of our podcasts, actually. And it's because it's a drama. And because it was a drama, there's like a distance with it. And right. at that time, we were 16. Yeah. A couple of years earlier, we watched the QED's Guide to Armageddon. <gasps> and that was Jeez. terrifying. Yeah. At 13. Horrible. That is terrifying uh, yeah. because that uh, presents everything as factual. There's no, yeah. um, there's no dramatic distance. There's no uh, acting involved in that. It, you know, to to us, we we thought threads was ridiculous because we just assumed we'd all get annihilated, and this idea that there would be a civilization that continued afterwards is was just fanciful. So we always we always dismissed uh, threads, and uh, wow. quite like quite like the idea of you know if if we were going to go, we'd go when we're sixteen, when we can have a motorbike gang with chainsaw, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, after the apocalypse. Well, but well, but well, but Max. that. That that um Armageddon that guide to the Armageddon was horrific, and that gave me nightmares for about a year. I guess I think I'm, I'm I think Dave is doing no to me. Damn! Sorry, <laughs> we've got the I've just realised them. We've got the nuclear war themed documentaries, and we've got the nuclear war themed dramas. And I've just realised Dave is writing about the dramas. I'm doing the documentaries. I've got to watch that bleeding thing again because I agree. It's, I made the point, didn't I, at Wigan, when you said that? The, the dispassionate, emotionless narration that makes it so terrifying. It's on YouTube, and it's one of the toughest watches you will ever see. I was 14 when Threads was on. It's still, for me, it's for me, personally, it's the most terrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. And I think it's because they chose to go down, you're right, the fantasy route of saying, if you are unlucky enough to survive, this is what you're going to face. And it was so realistic to me. That's the beauty of it. I dismissed the day after. To me, that was just, that was Dallas. That was Dynasty with Mushroom Clouds. It was like, it was these middle-class Americans. I can't relate to this. Threads was like my street. That was people with Northern accents that I could relate to in normal houses. And their lives, the whole of civilization is just changed in a split second. And I just 
it just stayed with me for months. But that bleeding guy to Armageddon did the same as well. I didn't get through it. I remember now, I watched it properly years later. I couldn't sit through the whole thing. It was too much for me yeah. at the time because yeah. I would have been 12. Yeah, yeah. No, if, um, if, if you can stomach it, go away and uh, watch that. And uh, yeah, it is yeah. terrifying. Some terrifying haircuts, but we're not allowed to laugh at those, <laughs> are we? We don't no. laugh at those. No, because no. it's just... Uh, <laughs> you laugh at the facial burns and the, the radiation. <laughs> exactly. That's... Well, that's great. That's great, uh, uh, Steve. Thanks for spending uh, the time time for talking to us. And you're going to come back next time and face the Games Master screen. Yes, I'm looking forward to this. Oh, brilliant! Thank you. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll be there. <laughs> and this is the kind of place you'd expect to find me, but no one expects to find me here. It seems too ordinary. But that pool is deep. The boy is showing off. The bank is slippery. The show-offs are easy. Speed rate! Welcome to Port Street Beer House. We're away from our usual den. We're, it's jazz afternoon here at the Port Street Beer House with Dirk and Blythe. <laughs> Do you like a bit of jazz? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Does anybody? <laughs> really? People say they do, but do they? So this is a new segment. It's called Speed Rate, and I'm sorry I've not workshopped it with you. Okay, it, yeah. <laughs> I probably need to explain <laughs> what I mean by it. So, what I thought I'd do is introduce a new segment that would cover games that probably don't warrant having a full episode to themselves, mm. but to have a segment. And I call it Speed Rate, because it's a bit like speed dating. Yeah, Again, okay. Against the clock. Uh, yeah, all right. Against the clock? Well, yeah, well, it, it, you've just got a all right. quick impressions. Yeah, all right. I quite like the idea of speed dating. Do they do it anymore? Speed dating? You like the idea of... Did you tell your wife? <laughs> speed dating. I've, I've, always, I've always liked it. I mean, this just is Just from an academic perspective, like yeah. what would happen if I tried it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I know what you mean, yeah. If I, if I went, yeah, sat down and people asked you, what would you end up with? I suppose it's because there's a bit of a game to it, isn't there? Yeah. It's a bit like a game. You're meeting all those people and you've only got a chance. I'm not very good at small talk, but I think most of them were going, have you ever done anything like this before? And then you'd go on when you're watching it. (laughs) Is this your first time? Is this your first time? You'd hear a bell and ring and you'd move on. Yeah. The next one says, is this your first time? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know. I've I've always been attracted to the idea of it. I mean, I'm... I don't know if it, they still happen now. I don't know whether... I think it could be a terrifying experience, though, couldn't it? Because you could sit... You, I mean, people who do it are looking for a partner, aren't they? Yeah. So you, you obviously have some... So I've got spur- a safety net. I've got you a have safety. a spurious academic interest in it that I'm sure your wife would accept. <laughs> but, <laughs> but for most people, they're trying to find a partner. I mean, what, you sit down... You'd be blind panic, wouldn't it? You sit down in front of someone and you think, oh, my God... But then they're going to ask you, thinking, "Oh no, if I answer, if I answer correctly or the right way, they're going to pick me." And if I, it's like a kind of nightmarish version of being picked for school football. So, you know, sports pick pick for yeah. the football sides. You know, when they're all lined up and the two most sporty lads would pick, oh, "I love you, I love you." And of course, people like us, I suspect many people listening, were the last to be picked or amongst the last to be picked. 
It was yeah. just like that, but we put even worse. Well, is it's not a thing though with that. Obviously, doing it as an academic exercise, it's a bit risk free. And so at the well, end you of it, say that. Is it, it, yeah, is it? At the end of it though, you kind of think, oh, well, still got it. Or if you did, if, if people judge you unkindly, thought you were boring, and he just asked me about, yeah. have I done this before? Yeah. Oh, for the two minutes. Then it, there's no, you know, you're in a you're in a win-win situation. I think you're putting an incredibly optimistic interpretation on speed dating. I know I have a friend who, when he got divorced, he did the internet dating thing, and he said it was the worst thing he'd ever done in his life. It's the most soul-destroying thing he'd ever done. This is what I was wondering though: whether speed dating was still a thing, or whether it had been replaced by Tinder, which is a much more efficient way of reducing your self-esteem, isn't it? It's kind of uh, no, it's not though, is it? Oh, oh yes, I mean it's a more efficient way yeah. to produce. Yes, it is. I think yeah. that's my friend's experience. He said it was terrible because he could go onto the account and you know fifty people had looked at his account and ignored him. I mean, you don't know. I suppose traditionally, well, traditionally, looking for a partner, you don't know if you're being ignored, do you? And that's but, the thing with to the know speed you're being ignored. <laughs> worse speed dating everybody's participant the rules are the same for everyone it's a level playing field yeah. anyway what are we talking about this for anyway you started it <laughs> you wanted to pursue it for your own strange reasons <laughs> we've already wasted time for this segment <laughs> talking about speed dating sure people are enjoying the jazz <laughs> no I'm listening to other rubbish listen to the yeah, jazz, jazz. some more jazz is jazz were available if you like the good thing I think the good thing about jazz is if you edit this conversation no one will be able to tell because <laughs> it's jazz isn't it I mean it's just a lot of noise so you can edit it no one will be able to tell yeah. you know whereas sometimes if it's an actual song it's you know presents a problem from an editing perspective doesn't it yeah so to explain this segment yeah so that's a good edit but well, you're on explaining it now aren't you we've explained speed dating to you all and why Dirk wants to do that <laughs> Because he thinks it'd be a win-win situation. I'd like to know if that, if anyone's done it, is it a win-win situation? I think it could be a lose-lose situation. Okay. <laughs> so the idea of this segment is that we pluck from the great library of RPGs again, and we run it through all of our usual. Mm. Ways of analysis. Yeah. If you can yeah. call it analysis, give that a lofty term. Yeah. So open box, judge blind these rules, and mm-hmm. if we have time to do the games master screen yeah. on one game within a twenty minute segment. Are you up for this? I am. I am. And I, I said that you could pick the game that we were doing. You did. Um, and the game I have picked is a favourite of mine, Monster of the Week. Monster of the Week. Monster, I mean I'd say Monster of the Week deserves a whole episode to itself. Right. If you're listening, Michael Sands, writer of Monster of the Week, but he, he decided it doesn't. But we'll, 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 we'll gloss over that. Um, no, I picked Monster of the Week because I do think it's a really, really good game. It's a, it's a fantastic little game. And you you encountered this at UK Games Expo, didn't you? Was it back in? Well, I encountered it before. I was before UK Games Expo. People people on the on the Twitter sphere were raving about it and it's not a particularly expensive game so you know and you think oh go on then I'll, I'll buy it I think I bought it from Fanboy uh, and it's powered by the Apocalypse Powered by Apocalypse isn't it yeah um, and I know Powered by the Apocalypse is quite con- controversial isn't it people do, don't get on with it sometimes And but I think Monster 
be a bold statement here. I think Monster Week is, is possibly the best iteration of it for me. I've, I've looked at I've looked at other Powered by the Apocalypse games and I can see why people might not get on with them. But I think, I think it really works. I think it's certainly the most accessible. Mm. I think I don't know if it's the best, but it's accessible, isn't yes. it? It's playable. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the rules are written in such a way that you can yeah. pick up. It, it doesn't scare the horses in quite no, the same way. No, I suppose that's what I mean. It, yeah, yeah. It, it, I'm not saying that, I don't know if it's the best because I've not looked at them all, but you know, you're right. It, as my first experience of Powered by the Apocalypse, I was puzzled why people thought had this bad reaction to this, there's this controversial reaction to the system. But of course, I think that's right because the way it's written, it's very well written, it's very accessible. And so you read it and think, oh, Powered by the Apocalypse is great. But, of course, you encounter other versions of that, or maybe not. But in this particular form, it's a very, it is a very accessible game, I think. And I think throughout this conversation, we'll have to refer to it as Powered by the Apocalypse, because I've tried doing PBTA, and PBTA, I, always, I keep getting tripped up. PBTA, yeah. But I think it's... PBSA, is that I, the sick animals? <laughs> I think it's because we're exposed to so many acronyms yeah. at work. <laughs> it's going to get jumbled up. It, it sounds like one that we already use, like uh, PTA Teachers Association. So we'll we'll stick to Powered by the Apocalypse. and we're not going on to Parents and Teachers Association. We've been on speed dating. They're very similar, I think. But it involves the second of minutes. Yes. No, I, I do think it's a really, really good game. I did it, and I did play it at Expo. I think we'd played it before that, but I did play it at Expo. Um, and I don't know who the guy was who ran it. He, he's one of these people you meet at conventions who, who he, he was really, really good. Really yeah. good games master. And we played it, and it was it's one of the best con games I've ever played. Really, really good. So you've often said this, but what made it so good? What? Well, I think it was part. It's partly him. He was. He was very good. Um, and I did a bit of Twitter snooping, and I think he was like an ex-teacher, an ex-educational scientist type person. Member of the, member of the PBT. Yeah. Member of the PBT. Me- he probably wasn't a parent teacher association. <laughs> yeah, yeah, possibly was, um, which I think helped. But it's a, a great game at a convention because one of the things. I mean, we'll get onto this when we talk about the three things I like. But one of the things I like is a playbook thing. So you can create characters at the table and everything about your character is on the playbook. So you just pick the stats and tick the boxes and that's your character. But I think as well those playbooks, in the, they, they, they highlight very, very well. I'll probably take a step back before I say this. What Monster of the Week is trying to recreate is those TV shows like yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Supernatural or... Even things like old stuff like Sapphire and Steel or I would argue even Doctor Who. Yeah. It's trying to recreate those TV shows of nowadays and the past where it was an hour-long thing, there was some monster, people investigated, people fought the monster. That's the format it, of it. And it's quite explicit about that as well, isn't yes. it? It says yes, that, that's what it is. That, that's what it is, and that's how you should build, build the game. And build yeah. a session as if it's a one-off, yeah. one shot. It's one shot. So, and even though you, it is, it is, it can be played as a campaign, but it should be a series of episodes which are one shots. That's how it kind of presents yeah. itself. Uh, the reason I, I think when I played it at, at Expo, what's good about it is the playbooks that are given really do a good job of highlighting that theme. So what happened is everyone sits down, you get these playbooks. You read them, you pick, tick some boxes, and bef- 
very, very quickly you develop a character that is like a character from a TV show. Yeah. And that's what drives it forward a bit. You know, you created your own character very quickly, but you'd created it in such a way that you felt you got the character you wanted. Yeah. You know, yeah. And you were playing the kind of character you wanted, and that powered the game. And also, it's a very, it's a kind of, it has a kind of fluidity to it, I think, Monster of the Week. So I wouldn't say the game at Expo was improvised. It wasn't. And I wouldn't say when, because we played it, I ran some games for you and Eddie, didn't I? And I wouldn't say they were improvised, because they weren't. Mm. I had a scenario. But it's the kind of game that, you've, I, I, of all the games I've played, it's one of the games I've felt most comfortable improvising in. Yeah. Because it is quite structured. So it has these moves and each move has things you can do things you can do, start and do and it, it just it feels like a comfortable space in which to improvise a little bit yeah you know that's and that came across at the Expo game yeah and as a player I've not uh, GM'd yet I'd love to GM it actually and uh, having a read of it over the last couple of days has reminded me that I really should uh, uh, should play it and I've got an idea which I might come back to at the end for some advice on that yeah. to uh, construct it but as a player I enjoyed it because of that very reason immediately when somebody says right imagine yourself in a TV show and we, we put ourselves in the 80s didn't we me and Eddie yeah. when we played it yeah. and there are mechanisms for riffing off each other's characters as well aren't they and, uh, yeah you some... have connections to each other and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah develop a bit of a backstory through the playbooks yeah. it's quite easy to do and, and we quickly set up this uh, scenario, this idea that we were venging uh, angels, like somebody. Uh, <laughs> you were like Thelma and Louise. Thelma and Louise. Yeah, you were Thelma and Louise, yeah. Uh, yeah. With, with a great your, big... your husband, Brad, had been killed by werewolves. Yes. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I had a big uh, yellow Ford Mustang, yeah. and yeah. we were going from town to town trying to track this werewolf yeah. down. And we had a few clues, and uh, yeah, it did really have that sense of like a serial and one of the touchstones that I had when I was playing it was definitely Stephen King and those yeah. Stephen King novels of the yeah, 80s yeah Salem's Lot that kind yeah. of thing yeah 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 and I think the playbooks are good in that there's a broad range of playbooks so you can you can have characters that can use magic and there is a playbook called The Monstrous where you can be like a, a vampire or a werewolf you can be that kind of character but at the same time they're not Essential. They're not. They're not essential to it. So you can can drop certain playbooks if you want. Because when we played it, we didn't go down that road, did we? We went no. for the road that you were ordinary, kind of relatively ordinary people investigating mysteries rather than supernatural people. But you can do it the other way if you wanted to. You know, yeah. if you wanted to be a, a vampire and a werewolf who were investigating mysteries. You can do. You can do that. You know. And I think it has one thing I like about it. I think it does really, really well is there's sometimes this, this tension in games where you get games that are like toolboxes and toolkits so Savage Worlds GURPS I think I mentioned Early Traveller was a bit like that well what they really are is a toolkit to create adventures and one of the problems with them is you feel sometimes a bit high and dry with it you feel a bit left yeah. at sea to some extent yeah. so we felt that with Savage Worlds yeah, Savage definitely. Worlds is a great game but when you buy Savage Worlds core rules it's everything it, covers everything superpowers science fiction balance yeah. everything and you read it you think well I don't know what to do with this you have to develop a bit of proficiency in the rules before yeah. you can start to construct something so if 
like a Daily Dwarf, he does a lot of uh, 2000 AD yeah. stuff, doesn't he? Constructed from the... You need to stick it on a setting. Yeah, stick it on and, a setting and find all the appropriate edges yeah. and build it up that and way. And Savage Worlds comes alive, has come alive for us when we've put it in settings like Deadlands or Necessary yeah. Evo or Slipstream. And, and got system mastery. You've got to know yeah, yeah, the system. Yeah, you've got to do that. Yeah. 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 Whereas I, I don't think we no. needed but then, but what, to get that with this. But what I think about Monster of the Week is really good is that in a way it's a toolkit because it allows you to do different types of monster hunting scenarios with different types of characters, different types of themes. But at the same time, it's quite grounded, so you do know what it's about as a game. Yeah. It's not just... It gives you lots of options, but at the same time, it steers you in a particular direction to say, well, if you've got all these options, it's still about this, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Whereas something like Savage Worlds... It gives you lots of options, but it's not necessarily about anything. Yeah. And that can sometimes leave you a bit out of kilter. Yeah. Whereas Monster of the Week, yeah, you can have, you know, if someone said, well, can we can we be a couple of vampires? Mm. Yeah, you can. Or can we be, you know, let's not have any supernatural players, let's just have ordinary people. Yeah, you yeah. can do that as well. But at the same time... It's all about monster hunting. Yeah. That's what it's about. And, and the, there's a playbook as well, like the professional, which allows you to be, yeah. you know, uh, even like mm. a, a squad of um, FBI agents. Yeah, you could do. Yeah. You could all have the same playbook because there's enough variety in the playbooks to yeah. have different, different kind of characters. And I think that's a real, that's a real strength to the game that so it, it allows you to do that. So just talk about the playbooks. And I know you, you probably go into this a bit more detail, but take something like Doctor Who. How would you build up Doctor Who? Well, there's a. You see, I think this is the most. You see, we picked on the most challenging one, but I think there's a there's a playbook called the mundane, right? And the mundane is just an ordinary person, a very ordinary person who's got mixed up in all this stuff. And of course, that could be the companion. Yeah. So your Rose, your Sarah yeah, Jane. Yeah, like Rose Tyler. You're an ordinary kid from a council estate, and you've got caught up in this. And the mundane characters are good characters. I mean, they've got abilities and everything, but you know they get they get mixed up in. I think well, they, they've got abilities like, I think. Oh, why are you flicking through? Why are you flicking through the ball? Yeah. Yeah, they stumble across something important. So you've got the um, a mo- You've got an ability to stumble across an important clue. You can do that. Thing. Yeah. You don't quite know what it means, but you find it. No one else finds it. That kind of thing, you know. So you've got those. So you could have the companion as the mundane, and the doctor. He could be. Oh, it. Oh, there could be. There, there, yeah, there. Sorry, he there could be um, an expert, or or even there is also. I mean, there's the spooky. There's the spooky character, you know, which is a kind of slightly. You know, I can do things normal people can't. Um, that kind of thing. You think, well, that could be the Doctor. You could yeah. use that playbook. Or even the Monstrous. This is an alien, isn't it? Yeah. So the Monstrous isn't necessarily... Instinctively, you think the Monstrous is all vampire werewolves, but actually the Monstrous could be... Just an alien. Just an alien creature, yeah. which is essentially what he is. And you could run Doctor Who. You run Doctor Who with Monster of the Week. There you yeah. go. There you go. That's how, that's, but that's testament, I think, to how good it is at replicating that TV show medium. You could do yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Supernatural, do Sapphire and Steel. You could do all those kind of things, and you can even do Doctor Who with it. Yeah. Very, very, very easily, I think. Well, let's get into the rules then. Judge by the rules. Yeah. And uh, this is where you have to pick three highlights and one right. duff. 
Okay. So, what's your three? Uh, three highlights. Well, I suppose play, playbook. The playbooks are yeah. a highlight. We've talked about them. I'll talk about a little bit more. Um, tags. 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 The gear tags. I quite like the the rule about gear tags. And another rule. Moves. I think. Moves. moves yeah. Moves. Right. Yeah. That's a good thing about this is because. You've not had as much time to think about it, have you? Yeah. That's this is why it's called speed. It's in speed. Go with me gut. Yeah, we're, we're on basing this on your attributes, yeah. not on your skill as a judge. Absolutely. This is pure instinct. This intuition. What we're going to see now, ladies and gentlemen, is magic in action. Okay. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> so what? Either that or something else. <laughs> Quite the opposite. So playbook. Do you want to spread, do you want the bad rule or do you not, do you want uh, that or do you want to leave that to later? Keep that under your Gary Bushel for right now. Okay, I will do. So playbooks, oh, I've talked about that a bit already. So playbooks are good because very easy to create characters. Great for convention play, because you can just stick it and, and really the playbooks just work like it's like filling in a form. You know, you've got yeah. statistics, you've got statistics, you've got charm, um obviously it speaks for itself, cool, um, Cool, I suppose, is a sort of interesting one. Cool is about doing things under pressure. So when we talk about moves, there's a move called act under pressure. Uh, you've got sharp, which is intelligence, toughness, which is tough, and weird, which is, you know, and they're started out, like, just as modifiers. So it's a 2d6 system. Um, you roll 2d6, get a 9 or more, succeeded, get a bit higher, you get extra benefits, and you add the stats. So on the playbook, you pick a row so you, this one you could pick charm at zero cool at zero sharp at plus one tough at plus two weird at zero and you fill that in and then you just get asked a lot of questions so you've got so let's look at let's look at the professional so the professional is yeah it could be like a detective ex-policeman that kind of thing um, then you go right you've got resources so you can pick two boxes for resources got well armed well financed Recognised authority, you know, support teams, you can pick two of those, it's easy. Um, then you've got things like, you've got moves, you've got special skills, so you've got unfazable, things like that, or you've got tactical genius or medic, you pick a couple of those, then you've got some gear options, assault rifle, grenade, grenade launch, uh, revolver, pick a couple of those, and then you've got uh, some history options to pick, things like that. And you've got a character. Yeah. You know, kind of well, fairly reasonably well fleshed out in about 10 minutes. Yeah. And I think it's probably the thing that impacted me the most first when I saw that, because that was like a revelation to have a character mm. that was quite easy to create yeah, yeah, on the yeah. fly. Yeah. But also the other bit is that you use that list to develop the character yeah. so you collect experience points if you like when yeah. uh, you fail don't you so yeah you when fail, you fail you get fail a role you get experience points yeah you yeah. learn from failure yeah. build those up and then once you get to a particular point you can pick more from your list yeah and that's that's the interesting thing I suppose you're right you build a character because what you see when you fill the playbook in you might pick a couple of options but you'll see another option where you'll think well that'd be interesting to pick that yeah. later on so you've already got an idea in your head you already aspiring to develop yeah. your character and, it's, and it's funny isn't it if you go back to when we were a lot younger 
the idea of rolling a character with a playbook would have been yeah. recoiled from it. Well, we? we sort of did with um, Star Wars, didn't we? Because yeah. West End game Star Wars did that. It's, yeah. it's a, was probably that was like, oh, that's not the way to do yeah. it. What's yeah. that? They're telling you what you can have. Well, no, yeah. I'm a free-thinking, creative person. Yeah. Apparently I'm not. But but it's it's a great way of creating a character. It does does work very, very well. Yeah. And surprisingly, there's enough options to play those playbooks again and create quite a different character out of that, I think. Yes, you know? yeah. So yeah. playbooks are a definite... Just one thing on failure, because... It is powered by the apocalypse, yeah, and it does have those grades of failure or success. It does, yeah, yeah, and success yeah. but and all that yeah. kind of thing. I do think that when we played it with, that when I played it with Eddie, that it can get quite tough. When yeah. you can yeah. get um, quite. It, it, it's quite uh, brutal sometimes. I think. I think we got to the stage quite a few times where it looked touch and go. Whether we actually combat's survive. quite brutal. Yeah, yeah. The combat's it's combat's fixed damage, is, isn't it? Fixed damage, and, and you're very quickly wounded and very quickly in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But then again, I think it's the kind of game where it gives you enough flexibility to not have to get into an absolute toe-to-toe fight with a vampire. Yes. You can, you can do things where, you know, or maybe Quantum that would talk about tag gear tags. It gives you that kind of narrative flexibility to, you don't just have to step up to a monster and fight it. Yeah. You know, if you do that, you're probably in trouble, but it gives you, there's kind of grey areas around the edges where you can, yeah. Tip things in your favour before you fight something. Yeah. Okay, so that's playbooks. Playbooks. Next up. Um gear gear tags. Gear tags. Gear tags. So there's a few games do this, but this is the first time I encountered it, I think, in bits where weapons, particularly weapons, have these tags on them which describes what they're good at and what pitfalls there are. So almost like characteristics of yeah. uh, inanimate objects, aren't they? Yeah. So you might have a weapon, a rifle, for example, that has the uh, tag of far on it, which means it can be used at long range. And I know it sounds, it's, some of it sounds obvious. You're talking about it now, it sounds a bit silly. Why would you have the tag noisy on a gun? Why would you have why, a shotgun noisy or messy? Why would you have, everyone knows that. But how many times in play, you forget about all those things. Yeah, I, I've run games where there's been a gunfight, and no one's ever, re- no one's ever remembered that guns are noisy. Yeah. So having those tags on things gives you that little reminder. You yeah. Know? And and also, it's not just weapons. You know, it can be all sorts of, of equipment. And those tags also give you sort of ideas. You know about. So it's like slow. Weapons slow to prepare an attack with unreliable weapon is regular cleaning and maintenance. So again, it gives the GM ideas about when things go wrong, what could be going wrong. Yeah, and it also gives players ideas on, you know, what. So it's like that heavy. All, all, all games do this. So all games have heavy weapons, don't they? But they don't tag them as heavy, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Whereas tagging it as heavy, heavy is. Weapon is heavy and difficult to wield, but also that that gives ideas around what else you can do with it because yeah. it's heavy. 
Yeah, and it, I suppose what it does that's different from what we might normally experience is that it gives it a narrative value as well as a numerical value. So in some of the games that we would normally yeah. play, it just described that as a encumbrance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just yeah. encumbrance. It's an encumbrance issue rather than an actual narrative. I suppose what the tags try to do. I think Spire does this as well, doesn't it? What the tags try to do is attach some narrative significance to equipment. Yeah. And so it's like it's like this one. Yeah. Intimate, intimate, is effective at close quarters within the embrace of your thought. Yeah. So that kind of suggests it's not just close quarter weapon. It's got to get really close to somebody yeah. to use whatever it is. That kind of thing. Yeah. Messy spreads a lot of blood and gore around. Yeah, that's my favourite, messy. <laughs> but it's because it is, isn't it? Again, how many games do you play where someone gets shot with a shotgun yeah. and people forget the mess it's going to be? Yeah, yeah. And, and you're right, that idea has been carried through to uh, games that have been inspired by Powered by the Apocalypse, things like Spire, but also Red Markets that does that quite a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. And yeah. also with the Red Markets, um, to go on a bit of a diversion, yeah. you actually build up those tags, don't you, to different equipment. Yeah. So you can actually upgrade your right. gear to have uh, more tags. But it kind of encourages narrative. It encourages the narrative and also it, it, it speeds the game up as well, gets the game more fluid. So it's like that far, tag far, effective at long range. So when someone says, can I hit him from here with this rifle? Far, it's got the far tag. Yeah, you can. You don't have to worry about, oh, it's 200, 200 the range is 200 metres, and he's, I'm sorry, he's 205 metres away, so oh, I'm sorry, you can't. It's far, it says far, means effective at long range. Is he a long way off? Yeah, I can hit him with this gun, because it says that. Yeah. And it's, it speeds the game up, speeds the whole process up. Yeah. So as well as adding that, giving you ideas about these things, this equipment, it also just speeds the whole thing up. Great stuff. I like tags as well. What about your next one? What have you got next? Well, the next one I picked was moves. Because I think moves are... Well, they're fundamental to it. Aren't they? They're fundamental by the apocalypse. And I suppose, in a way, they are the one thing. Because even when I read Monster of the Week, although it's very accessible, they are the one thing that you think, oh, that's a bit... Yeah. That's a bit odd, isn't it? Because what you're used to in role-playing games is the idea that, well, I'll, I'll attack someone, I'll pick the lock, I'll sneak... I'll do that when it doesn't really deal with it in those ways does it no so for example if you wanted to sneak past some guards for example it doesn't have a stealth roll it has act under pressure so it's got moves it's got act under pressure help out it's got uh, investigate a mystery kick some ass yeah AWS ass yeah, I, I think I've uh, written in my book. It says ass. You say ass. You spelled it the proper way. Yeah. Uh, kick some ass, which is which is combat. Uh, manipulate someone, protect someone, and read a bad situation. And on the face of it, and there's a use magic one if you want it. But on the face of it, you think, oh, I, I, would everything fit into that that I want? And would everything fit into those categories? But it, but it does. Surprisingly, it does. Yeah. You know. So sneaking past the guards is act under pressure. Yeah, that's act under pressure. It's a cool role. That, that's well, I, I think it's a bit more than that because I think uh, you could say that it has equivalence with skills, but it, it is a bit more than that. And you know, when you're saying about how you, when we're playing this game, we were creating it, a fiction and we improvising. Yes, yeah, yeah. 
yeah. it's the moves that gives you that space that you can create the scenes and create the yeah. situation isn't it yeah. um, so that's what makes it more interesting it isn't just a case of saying well give us a stealth roll you have to build up right yeah because it doesn't can... it doesn't really do it doesn't do yeah, it doesn't do that does it it doesn't say you know it does say in the rules you know act, act under pressure uh, covers trying to do something under conditions of stress or danger so it does sort of explain it but it certainly doesn't give a list of skills it doesn't no. say these these acts fall under act under pressure. Yeah. So what you've got to do as a player yeah. is create situations where that's where a legitimate that, move. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Which does does make it more narrative and more slightly more dramatic. And I yeah. suppose that's sort of what I mean about to some extent what I mean about the improvisational elements yeah, yeah. of it. That's that, that, you know. That, I think that's what I was saying is that that's where the improvisation came out of. Yeah. Even though you may have had an idea of ultimately where this was going, it felt like we were finding our way yeah. through it because by using our moves, we had a bit more freedom yes. to shape yeah. the way that it went. Yeah. yeah. And the scenarios, when I wrote a couple of scenarios for it, and the scenarios were really easy to write because you don't have to worry about all the roles and even don't have to worry much about the NPC stats apart from the monsters. Yeah. Because it all hinges on how the players are going to react to it and how they're going to deal with it. You need yeah. to, like, again, that, you need to get into some mad scientist laboratory. That's all I need to jot down, because yeah. really... We'll create everything it, it, else. It's all player-facing roles, and yeah. you'll come up with some narrative that will fit one of these moves. Yeah. yeah, but within the context of thinking, this is like a TV show. Yes. But, in our case, from the eighties, yeah. so we were like riffing off that. Yeah, you're going to draw, you're going to draw on on those things that that happened in those kind of TV shows because, as you say, it, it's got a very clear. Although you can recreate very different TV shows, it's got a TV show theme running through. Yeah. One of the. What about the uh, bad things? What are the things that you? What's the, what's the, the thing I don't thing? like this is, just, this is just me it's not really a criticism of the game is it's player facing rolls isn't it so I don't roll any dice yeah which always irritates me as a games master because yeah. I want to roll some dice yeah I feel like I've been cheated if I don't roll some dice the human error is like that yeah, yeah the human error effect the human error effect keep yeah. picking the dice up and well, going picking it up first well I'm picking the dice up I don't roll oh, yeah. oh, oh no I feel like it's a lot of full experience I want to roll some dice let me roll the dice no, you can't. One of the things uh, I'd, I'd say about it is that I think some of the illustrations of it don't really set the tone. Mm. I mean, I don't think they're bad illustrations. I just don't think they fit. They're a bit off-putting, I think, in, mm. in some places. I don't. I say I don't think they're particularly bad. I just think it doesn't. It gives you a different impression of the game. Don't when you actually play it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that this has got the best. Uh, games master advice mm. that I've read yeah. in a small book because it I, th I think uh, Vason and uh, Liminal owe a certain debt to its approach because the way that it tells you how to build mysteries and it does tell you because it's quite prescriptive yeah it's quite structured isn't it yeah. yeah there's a clock there's a clock of events and all those kind of things that you work through the clock of events so the players don't intervene certain things happen got all that kind of stuff going yeah. on yeah yeah 
Yeah, and oh, it's telling you to kind of really turn turn up the horror. Yeah, and uh, yeah. and also the structure, the structure in the moves because the investigator mystery move allows you to ask specific questions. So yeah. again, it it does a good job of how to how to run a mystery. As a system, it works well for a mystery. And also, as I said, the game master's vice is very good in terms of how to put these things together. And when you combine the two, whenever I've run it, it doesn't end up... There's always danger with investigative games that players would get lost and puzzled and not know what's going on. And as a games master, you're trying to claw it back without just giving them the answers, because that yeah. feels like cheating. But Monster Week does a great job of structuring it. And like you say, the way that Basin does so that that structure stops it running away with itself. Yeah. It, it contains... Yeah. And, and almost tells you, you know, it is all right to give the players yeah. clues. Yeah. You can give them so There's a bit like in, in Vason, it does think of there's a tipping point in the game where you know what you know what's going on, now you've got to fix it. Yes, yeah. You know, now you've got to sort it out. There's like two phases to the game. What's going on? Right. It's a three-hour session. About an hour or so in, you're going to work out what's going on. But now you need to fix it and sort it out. Yeah. And that comes through that structure. Yeah. And like you say, it's prescriptive, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, no. It, and it follows the Buffy model, doesn't it? That's how. Yeah. Follows the TV show model. Yeah. 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 The last twenty minutes is sorting it out. The first forty minutes is what's going on. The last yeah. twenty minutes is sorting it out. It's yeah. exactly the same thing. Yeah. So to take my idea, so I've got this idea, and to take the. Uh, public information film The Dark and Lonely Water you know the one that's narrated by Donald Pleasant and it's you know you'd be such a catch at speed dating wouldn't you <laughs> such a catch <laughs> what have we doing this week well I've been thinking about the public information film The Dark and Lonely Water you know the one with Donald Pleasant about kids drowning yeah bing <laughs> next I was hoping for GM advice. I've been rejected. <laughs> this branch is weak, rotten. It'll never take his weight. Only a fool would ignore this. But there's one born every minute. Under the water there are traps. Old cars, bedsteads, weeds, hidden depths. It's the perfect place for an accident. Oh, look, there's someone in the water. Quick, use that big stick to get him out. Sensible children. I have no power over them. I'll get me caught. Well, I'm sorry if you were looking forward to uh, our working through of an adventure for the spirit of dark and lonely water, but... I was too busy laughing to continue. So we're going to start heading towards the door. Some light jazz playing in the background. And we've got our coats on and we're heading towards the door. But we've got some time for a closing time chatter. Blythe, what's your closing time chatter for this time? Well, I'm going to... Um, I'm going to shock you. Shock me. I'm going to shock you. And I imagine a number of people listening may start to cheer at this point when I reveal what I'm... Okay, go on. If I was to say the word funnel to you, if I was to say the word funnel, what would be your initial reaction? I would be thinking Fred Dibner and steam engines. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. <laughs> you know you wouldn't. You like that. You like that. 
What, 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 what? You, funnel. Dungeon Crawl Classic. Dungeon Crawl I'm going to say those three, the three little words. The DCCs? DCC. With the PBTAs. Dungeon Crawl, yeah, DCC. Dungeon Crawl Classics. As you know, it was my birthday recently. It was my birthday. Yeah. And Mrs. Blythe said to me, what would you like for your birthday? Which is nice of her to ask, because, you know, in the past... Yeah. I've, uh, you know, had things like a Gino De Campo cookery book. You know, things that I don't want. <laughs> things that I don't, do not want. It's nice of her to ask. And an expo... I bet, I bet he uses a funnel. That's rubbish. <laughs> I've never said... I, I've got one of them. I mean, honestly, it's just a load of... Like pasta with a load of rubbish thrown in. <laughs> I'm not saying Italian food's that, but that, it, it's such a, a really bad book. Anyway, really bad, Dungeon Crawl Classic, we're on the speed anyway, dating thing. Funnel. Yeah. We'll, we'll use our two minutes. Um, <laughs> I'm playing Dungeon Crawl Classics at Expo. Right. I booked myself on to see what all the fuss is about. And I thought, I love that. Get me Dungeon Crawl Classics and the funky weird dice, the D14 or the Saturn. Yeah. I'm quite struck on it. Really? I think we've both we've both dismissed it, haven't we? I'm, I certainly have. I've dismissed it as another. You know, I've got I've got old school essentials. I've got swords and wizardry. I've got a few other OSR getting up. You know, you think, what do I need another old school D and D type clone game for? What's yeah. the big What's the big fuss about it? But he's quite innovative as a game. Because it gives you what it tries to do. It gives you the D&D experience. But it adds lots of little tweaks. Things that I think you can find frustrating about the old school games. So there's things like you can burn a bit of luck. There's those weird tables. It's got critical tables, fumble tables, things that sort of... A bit more going on than just a D20 roll. I can see why people like it. Yeah. You know, I'm not... Not played it yet. We'll see. It remains to be seen, doesn't it? Yeah. I've not played it. I've not run it. But on the face of it, I've changed my opinion of it. I've been guilty of just dismissing it as, oh yeah, but it's another dungeon crawl game, isn't it? It's another. I've got I've got loads of games like that. Why do I need another one? But to be honest, reading it, I thought, you know, it, it, it sort of spices it up and mixes it up a bit and gives you other elements of. Well, you know where Eddie trying to convince me and he, he gifted me very kindly gifted yeah. me a copy of it well I had he gave it to me yeah and I had it over lockdown I couldn't give it to you yeah I had it on the shelf the same thing I've got now on the shelf at home and I used to flick through it and think oh, oh you know whatever I'm a class you know, yeah, I know I've got games like that but uh, yeah I think I think it might be remains to be seen the jury's yeah. still out but on the face of reading it, I, I can see why people like it. So you're going to schedule a game in? I think later this year we need to play some Dungeons Draw Classics. Yeah. I, I don't know what... It, it, it is one of those things that I, I've looked at it and I'm just... Somehow can't get into it. Yeah, get, yeah, it, yeah. Can't get into yeah. it. Yeah, I think the fact it was bought as a gift and I thought, well, no, I've got it. Officially got it. I'm not yeah. just holding on to it over lockdown for you. I officially got it, I better read it. And I'm going to be playing it, so I better read it. I don't want to turn up at the table and be the, oh, no, I don't know what's going on. I thought, I'll read it and I'm just trying to understand yeah. it, get the dice, so at least good an to, air of competency about me. It'd be good to uh, play it around the table as well, wouldn't it? It'd be good to play yeah. with Eddie. Get, yeah, 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 yeah. But actually, on, the, on reading it, I think it could be a lot of fun, that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, get me funnel out. Get your funnel out. Bring yeah. your funnel. Nice 2022, one. year of the funnel. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I suppose my closing time chat is a bit related to that discussion of why some things click and some things don't. Mm. Because at the moment, there's the Blade Runner RPG, the most anticipated role-playing game of 2022. Mm. Yeah. However, I just can't. I just... <laughs> I just can't get into it. I I love the film. I really love it, as you know. Yeah. I've had it in every format going. It was the first VHS film I Director's bought. Cut. Editor's cut. cut. Editor's cut. Seen it at the cinema loads of time. <laughs> love the, uh, 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 the, the 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 recent um, uh, revamp and uh, continuation yeah, yeah. of it. Yeah, I have the same. Great, great. I, I love the original. I like the sequel as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great characters, great setting, but I just I have no interest in uh, backing the Kickstarter. Why is that? Because Free League, you know, Free League will yeah. do a great job of it. The Kickstarter is a really good value for money. They'll get a starter yeah. set. You get all the gear, and it'll look fabulous. Yeah. Why? 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 My man. Do you not think? Do you not think it has? It's because it has limited potential for gaming. I mean, what are you going to do? Be a Blade Runner, hunt some replicants, that's it. Yeah, but I, I don't th- think it's. I think from that. I think I think that is one thing, but I quite like those. Uh, I've recently been looking at Game Reach, yeah. which is uh, Robin D. Law's uh, gumshoe game um, for Jack Vance, uh, Demon mm. Princess, and that is just like a hunt game. So you're going through the galaxy, hunting down um, somebody to yeah. it vengeance. So that's quite limited and got limited scope. We talked about Monster of the Week, really. Yeah, that, true. that's that's yeah. quite limited, yeah. isn't it? Although it is a tool kit and you've probably got a bit more range of bit things. Scope, yeah. I just don't know I just don't know what it is that um I mean what they're saying is that it's gonna be groundbreaking in investigation. But that seems to amount to that it's gonna have loads of hands out handouts. Do you know I think it's a bit of Kickstarter burnout though with it? I, I found this. I mean I, I think over lockdown I backed lots and lots of Kickstarters and most of them were great, you know, they came and everything, but is, is there not that sense of... On the one hand, with Kickstarters, you do get that problem, you get very, very excited about backing it. And by the time you get it, you might be less excited about it. Yeah. That's, that can be a problem. Maybe the reverse will be true in this case. Maybe I'm not excited about it now. If I get it, I'm like, yeah, come in a few months' time. You can like, buy it, can't you? can buy it, yeah. You can just that's, buy it. That is what is in the back of my mind to think, if I wanted it... I just buy it in the shop. Yeah, see, it's a safer option because what you can do is is see what it's like, see what people think of it, and then buy it. Yeah, you know. I mean, I, I get I get the thing with Kickstarters that you are supporting the production of without the Kickstarter, maybe it wouldn't be produced. I get that, but maybe it's just a bit of Kickstarter burnout. Simple as that. I must admit that I went in big for that Twilight Two Thousand, mm. and that was really good. What you got was. Uh, a lot of stuff I got a lot of stuff for what I paid however I've not played it I've not got anything scheduled in to play it and I do know that at the time there was a lot of talk saying oh you know at conventions and you'll be able to you know when it gets released so many people have backed it that you'll not be able to move for people yeah, playing for it yeah. but I don't think you've seen that have no, you? no I don't think I've seen one we run at a convention <laughs> actually no and when I got it 
you know, the, the cake looks alright, but the whole thing of it, it's just not me. It's it's just not my kind of thing. But you're right, I probably got captivated by the idea yeah. Yeah. of backing it on a Kickstarter and then when I got it, I was like, well, what do I do with this? It's a bit different with uh, Blade Runner though, because I think, I think I probably could run stuff, but I just, I'm just not, it doesn't appeal to me at all, I don't know why. No, I, I know what you mean, but that's often, that's sometimes the case, isn't it? I mean, think of, think of fantasy role, think of traditional fantasy role play, you know, fighting monsters going down dungeons and all that. By and large, those films about those kind of things, with a few notable exceptions, are often a bit rubbish, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't follow that because you like the film and you like the role-play game, no, and vice no. versa, you know. Yeah. If, if someone, you know, released a film about some people going down a dungeon, getting treasure, part of me would think, oh, God, really? Oh, I'm sure yeah. keen on that. Yeah. But, yeah, it doesn't always follow, does it? Because the film's brilliant. Yeah. The, the role-playing game would be brilliant. Because they're, diff- they're different mediums, aren't they? They're yeah. different things. Yeah. Well, you've not done much to persuade me. I was quick when I walked in here. I'm twice as quick now <laughs> as Deckard might say. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll see. It might be brilliant. But... But I, I, I think it's... I feel it sometimes. I think it's a bit of Kickstarter burnout. Well, as I, I said, I don't... I don't think Kickstarter's ever... I'm lucky enough to say Kickstarter things have never disappointed me in a significant way, as in it's never produced, never materialised, or it's been dreadful. But there is sometimes that tailing off of enthusiasm when you back something from when you get it six or 12 months later, where you think, oh, yeah, I backed this, didn't I? Yeah. Oh, maybe I should run it. I don't know if I want to now. It's a year year later or nine months later and the thing is as well is that you forget that you change don't you you know yeah. let's face it we were as they say on the internet bouncing off hard from DCC Dungeon Call Classics but now we're looking at playing it and I think that yeah. counts now that's your quarter no it doesn't it was a gift no well you... it was a gift you can't count that again, me, me quarter, you can't you can't oh. as a non-qualified lawyer as a rule <laughs> I would say. But you've already claimed two exceptions in the one year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Your, well, Honor. Your Honour, I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, because it was a bargain. You yeah, well, the bargain, yeah. That, the John Carter thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but we're in the second quarter now, aren't we? Yeah, but you've already bought something else. What well, did I buy? Oh, yeah. What well, did I buy in the first get, quarter? Get out, get out of here. <laughs> Thanks to Steve for the open box interview. Next time he faces the Games Master screen and we pick out some of the topics featured in the next volume of Scarred for Life, which is due to be released late summer. What might come up on the roll of a dice apparently at random? Alma Mater? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles after the bomb? Or something completely different? You'll have to tune in to find out. In the meantime, if you haven't got a copy of the first two volumes, I hope that you'll give them a try because they're brilliantly researched and pitched with the right balance of nostalgia, with a chatty style that switches to reverence to irreverence, with a great judgment of the right tone based on the topic. As I've said, I've lost hours following trails of material from the great to the bad 
to the downright terrible. I've put a link in the show notes to the Lulu site where you'll find them. Steve says you should always buy them Monday to Friday as there are often discount codes available, apart from the weekends for some reason. To keep track of the current discount codes, you should follow Scarred for Life on Twitter, at Scarred for Life 2, where you'll also find the details of their live shows. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our patrons, old and new, and I'll give some individual shout-outs to new starters next time. We're currently treating patrons to an extra actual play podcast, thanks to a lukewarm demand. The Gangbusters one has just dropped, as the kids say, and there's more coming out soon. Until next time, be careful. Adios, amigos.